Pray with me. God, we just look to you today and we're grateful for your grace to us. And Lord, we pray that our souls would be open to the one who's with us. For we are not alone. In Jesus' name, amen. What a great song. Thank you so much, Jamie, for sharing that with us. I come from a family that dances. If any of you are aware of what the history of the Church of Nazarene is in its way distant past, we had these positions about being against dancing. And rightfully so, because at the time, all the things that were influenced by that and the entertainments. But can you imagine what it was like when I came into the Church of Nazarene, coming from a family that dances? And we used to sit and gather in our home, and, and my parents would dance downstairs. I, I think it was their way of kind of avoiding us as children, because <laughs> they'd start doing that, and we all like would leave the room. That was like too much. But we would all go upstairs, and they'd be down in the family room, and we'd be looking through the railing, and we'd see, we'd see my dad down there. He'd be doing his little Portuguese steps with my mom, and and my mom would be just following along, and they'd be playing music and all that. But the one who was most famous for dancing in our family was my Uncle Johnny. And I don't know if this is a New Jersey thing or what, but just the way he would dance. He, it didn't matter. They'd be playing some really nice romantic ballad, and my Uncle Johnny would be dancing with my Aunt Claire like this. <laughs> just kind of one step and back really casually. And then they'd play some really upbeat, you know, like jazz thing, and my Uncle Johnny would be dancing. Just like... I think if they started breaking out with like break dancing music, he'd, be, he'd just be dancing. It didn't matter. They could be playing rock and roll, jazz, ballads, and there was my Uncle Johnny. Same look on his face, no expression. I don't know, he was a real like tough New Jersey guy, so I wonder if that was what they did, but I, everyone else was twirling all around him. Well, when we hear the psalmist talk about dancing, I want to promise you something, that the dancing he's referring to is not my Uncle Johnny's type of dancing. <laughs> so when you come to this, in this psalm, you need to know this is not about Uncle Johnny. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing the psalmist says. Now to get an idea of what the psalmist is really speaking about, you really have to kind of go to this one space in King David's history where the, where the Ark of the Covenant has been lost and now it's returned to Jerusalem. And as it's coming back in, we read these words, and David danced before the Lord with all his might with shouts of joy. And the word dancing there literally means he was twirling around with so much exuberance and joy. Because of what God had done. In fact, he was so out of control, or so it seemed, that his wife looked on and was embarrassed. And he said to her, I'll be embarrassed even more if it is to bring glory to God. As an aside, it caused me to ask myself this question, 
Is my praise ever so exuberant, I become an embarrassment to someone else? Right? Well, I think I'll stay away from the France. He's a little too much. But before we can dance, we need to deal with a word that we dread. And it's the dreaded word, then. Can you say that with me? Then. Everything after the then often points to what we did not plan for, what we did not expect, what we did not want. After the then is the path, the dark path of the future. We can only see down the road so far and, and really, really we can, we can mostly see what is before us. We, we stare down the road a little further on the future and we begin to lose focus. And if we try to look out further down that road called the future, it's just dark. And that darkness is not necessarily foreboding. It, it, it's not necessarily hard or painful. It, it is simply the darkness of the unknown. None of us really like the unknown. And that is why when we begin to trust that the present blessing or the current good circumstances will always be, and then we build our future upon that, well, that is why the Bible says some important things to us. Maybe you remember these words from the book of James. Look here. You who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? What a, what a penetrating question. Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is this. If the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. When we trust in good fortune and good health and good skills and good resources, life has a way of gut-punching us. And we are left gasping for breath and, and sometimes we're dazed and confused by what we kind of see as a sucker punch from God. You see, things were going really well for David. Life was moving along on the trajectory he had hoped for. This is the way it's supposed to be. In fact, everything was working out. This is what it says in verse 7. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Psalm 30, verse 7. There it is. Nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O Lord, made me as secure as a mountain. I recently heard a definition of sin this way. Infinite devotion to a finite thing. Lock that one down. Infinite devotion to a finite thing. David Brooks, I believe, is the one who said it in his new book, The Second Mountain. That's the problem of the psalmist here. Nothing can stop me now, Lord. I'm as secure as a mountain. But then. Because listen to what it then says. Then, there's the dreaded word, 
you turned away from me, and I was shattered. That's a strong word, that word shattered, bohal. It means to be alarmed, to be disturbed, to be anxious, to be terrified, to be hurried, to be nervous. That kind of word, that kind of reality could cause us to stare down the path called the future, not with hopeful anticipation, but with dismay. And that's what happened, it seems, here in Psalm 30 with David. He can't seem to make up his mind. One minute he's upbeat, the next minute he's dismayed. One moment he's in need of great help, and the next moment he's thanking God. What is happening here? If there's a psalm that represents the highs and lows of life lived for God each day, Psalm 30 is it. At least one of them. But but from David in Psalm 30, this is what we learn. We learn to dance. Now some of us probably dance really ugly. So we don't want anyone breaking out and dancing here today. Okay, It might look ugly. But every one of us can dance this dance. David is teaching the soul to dance. The dance steps for the soul, whatever we face. And what he does is he makes a conscious choice to change the calculation. He recalibrates his thinking. He repositions his focus. He realigns his soul and he remembers this. His dependence and preoccupation cannot be in the circumstances, the blessings, or even the people, but rather this is what he says right at the top at verse 1. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. Not my circumstances. Not my resources. Not the people in my life. I'm not saying God doesn't use those, but hear what he says. You rescued me. So I have a question for every one of us here today. What have you been rescued from? In relationship with God, when we are in relationship with Jesus Christ, we are rescued. And that changes the calculation. It it turns praise into calculated praise. And I think even praise may be an insufficient word. In fact, this is about going on record about what God has done. Tell the community what God has done. Speak of what God has done. And so that's what David does. He says right at the the top, you rescued me. He then goes on and shares with us this narrative of what life has been life, but he wants us to know right up top, you rescued me, God. Minimally, we have been saved from our sins. Praise God. We've been saved from ourselves. We've been saved, some of us, from our history. So even in the dark spaces, we must ask, what can I give God praise for? What can you give God praise for today? Even if you're in the dark spaces. Who did God send into your life, into my life, as part of his rescue plan of grace? What has God rescued you from? And what is God rescuing you for? More on that next week. So you have to come back next week to hear the answer to that question. But today, ask yourself the question, what has God rescued me from?
Go on record and declare your thanks to and trust in God. And that is praise. But, but that's not just something to make us feel good. It's not just getting our emotions worked up, singing a song as we gather in church. It's about changing the calculation of how we deal with what we encounter in life. And man, that is not easy. Let's just be honest about that. But yet this psalm, this psalm really is all about moving into the darkness of the unknown and changing that calculation. Not with fear and trepidation, but he says, let's go with dancing. Verse 11, you have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I may sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. What this prayerful praise does is it removes the preoccupation we have with the self and what we want and what we want for our future and it places it on the God who is eternally present. In verse 5, the psalmist says, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Now think about that for a moment with me. Again, let's be clear and let's be honest. We do things that anger God. David did, right? David committed adultery. And then he committed murder. And then David pridefully counted his army see how big they were and God was not happy with any of that he was angry about that so so we see God's anger is over our sinful disobedience that prevents us from living into the life that he desires for us but at the same time when some people read that they begin to think that bad things are the result of God being capriciously angry. And that's not true either. As if some way we don't measure up, so God's angry with us. That's not what this is about. You see, this entire verse is actually about God, through David, wanting us to remember that we receive grace and mercy for a lifetime. So whatever comes in that lifetime, whatever happens in the span of my lifetime, most of which none of us knows ahead of time, is met by grace and mercy. Grace given in what we do not deserve. And mercy withholding what we do deserve. Grace receiving what we don't deserve from God and mercy withholding what we do deserve. And so for the rest of our lifetime, whether that is today or next Thursday or September 25th, 2023, it is met with grace. We are met with the God of grace. And so the response in verse 12 is, So Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. Grace for a lifetime. Thanks forever. The God who is eternally present. And the lesson is that our focus is to be on this eternal God who is present now. And it is then we can walk into the lifetime of the unknown. And that's what David's doing. How do we know that? Well, this psalm 
may have been written about dedicating the temple, or at least dedicating his house, his palace. Many English Bibles have that heading for the dedication of the temple. That sounds like no big deal except for this one thing. That is something David was not permitted to do. David was expressly told by God, you are not going to build the temple. So if David did build this or write this as a dedication to the temple, something he was never able to do, he may have written this with faith that it would one day be a reality. That it would one day be realized, not because of what he did, or not because of who he was, or not because of what he had, or not because what he may do, but because his trust was in the eternal God who is present now. One Jewish scholar suggests this, though. The psalm is not about the dedication of any earthly structure, but that each individual might be seen as a bayet, a vessel, that can, if we so choose, be dedicated to God. And so Samuel Barth says, Psalm 30 is then a challenge addressed to each of us each day. Are we dedicating ourselves, our words, our thoughts, even our doubts and fears to becoming a temple dedicated to the eternal God? So when, when I know that I am a temple dedicated to God, when I know that my words, my thoughts, and even my doubts and my fears are dedicated to God, when we talk about placing our faith in God, or we talk about being committed to God, or we talk about being dedicated to God, we often talk, think in terms of things we do. But we're talking about who we are. Everything about who we are. That which is great and good and beautiful and that which is sinful and ugly and doubt-filled and fear-filled, bringing it all to God, that's, that's an act of holy worship. And so what happens if that is what this dedication of my life as a temple to God is all about? If that is true, then this is true. That means I can open up my heart to God truly that I can open up my life and my heart to God and I can cry out. And that's exactly what the psalmist did. Remember, we're talking about changing the calculation of what we encounter. And in verse 8, he says, I cry out to you, O good Lord. I begged for mercy. And what the psalmist found and what we found, find is we are met with mercy because we are met with the merciful God. And so we can come in confession in the ordinary days of life, we can meet the extraordinary, eternally present God. And we can come in confession, and we can confess disappointments, and we can confess fears and failures and sadness and weariness and dismay and disillusionments and sin. Remember that definition in infinite devotion to a finite thing? We can come with that to God. We can bring it all to God. We can bring our anger to God. We, we can come and bring our great victories. We should bring our great victories. And we can come and bring our most perplexing moments and our unanswered questions. We can come, we can come open-handed and open-hearted because we know this eternal God is with us and he goes before us and we can cry out in full trust and that changes the calculation on how we move into the unknown. One word of advice for our 16 students going to NYC. 
You need to go open-handed and open-hearted. Don't go there looking for a good time. Don't go there looking to be entertained. Go there open-handed and open-hearted to see what God could bring to your table, the table of your heart, how he might change you, how he might alter the trajectory of your life, how he might change your focus. And that's so true for all of us. Come with this open-handedness, this open-heartedness. We can cry out in full trust. You see, that changes the calculation because of this. You never know what the future holds. Don't you hate that part? Right? Don't you hate that part? I do. Oftentimes the future comes slamming into me in the present and it's not what I wanted. It's not what I anticipated. It's not what I expected. You can never know, it seems, what the future holds except for one thing. And the psalmist nails it. He says, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. That little word, but, in that verse of Scripture, trumps the dreaded then. It defeats it. It creates a contrast between what may be and what will ultimately be. And in this, it does not deny the realities that drive us to weeping. It talks about the weeping. But it does point us to the truth that is most helpful. It is the truth that causes us to break into the dancing of verse 11. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. There's one truth that makes this switch, this turn. This one truth that we know we can count on. We know that the great sadnesses of life, the torturous sufferings, the confusing disappointments, the dark depressions, and even dark death's shadow do not, will not have the final word. Praise God. God, the eternal God, has the final word, and it is a word of redemption, hope, love, and yes, joy. I asked our fire pit that question last week. And these young adults sat around our kitchen table, and I asked them this question, what is the gospel? And one of them said, the gospel is redemption, hope, and love. I thought that would preach really well. So I thought I'd use it today. Thank you, fire pit. But it's a good word for us today, isn't it? See, that, that is the truth. It is a word of rescue. Where this psalmist started. And if this is true for anyone, it must be true for the people who hold to an unfailing faith in the resurrection. As the creed says, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. And as we're reminded by Paul, and now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. So my friends, we are to hold out for joy. We are to dance with joy. Not because of our circumstances and not, not with the idea that they're going to improve or that our future will look bright but because it is the very God, the eternal God, who is with us, who we know will be with us still in the unknown future before us. So we learn to dance in the darkness when we trust God, the eternal God, each day. And that changes the calculation. 
This God who will rescue us from ourselves, our sin and our shame, who rescues us from our past and into our present and into the future. And so we dance as a rescued people by this God. In many ways, this table that we gather around today is a dance floor. It's a dance floor for our souls. Remember, the church has given historically a label to this table called Eucharist. 37 times in the New Testament, there's one term, Eucharisteo, that's repeated over and over 37 times in the New Testament. And really, it can be translated in one way. This is the Jeff de France translation. So don't quote this, but anyway. Thank you, God. That's it. Thank you, God. Thank you, O oh God, who has rescued us. We're a rescued people. And maybe you're here today and you say, but I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I haven't made that commitment yet. I want you to know something. You're a rescued person. God's just waiting for you to receive the rescue. He just wants you to say, yes, I will allow you, God, to rescue my life. We are a rescued people. Thank you, O oh God, who has rescued us, who rescues us now and will rescue us in what lies ahead. It is an essential dance step. And so today we invite you to the table as those who come publicly and say, thank you, God. When you come and you receive the sacrament of communion, when we partake together as the people of God, we're just saying, thank you, God. Thank you for the gifts of grace we receive but not deserve. Thank you for the mercy for what we do not receive, but do deserve. We come, O oh God, open-handed, open-hearted, and we cry out with the psalmist, I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. So we come and we celebrate our rescue. We come and we trust God for a lifetime. We come to the table, and this is what we do. We dance into our future with the eternally present God. I'm going to invite our pastors to come as we prepare for communion. Our worship team is going to come as we prepare for communion. And as we're preparing for communion, remember these words from the Gospel of Luke. Then he took a cup of wine and he gave Eucharisteo. Gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. He took some bread and he gave Eucharisteo to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. My friends, I invite you to this place of thanksgiving that points to the definitive act in all of history of rescue. God rescuing us. 
I want to invite you today to come with thanksgiving, with faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. And even today, today, if you say, well, you know, Pastor Jeff, I, has, I haven't begun this dance yet. Today's a great day to come by faith, trust in Christ, receive the gift of his grace, and celebrate that at this table. I invite you to stand with me this morning. And as you come to the table, I invite you to come out from the left side of your section, come to one of these three stations, and then return back to your seat. And let's wait together. And in community, we will celebrate with thanksgiving the God who rescue us, rescues us. I invite you now to come to the table of the Lord, to this dance floor of joy. I invite you to stand this morning. I decided today for our benediction... We're going to um, pray a prayer of a card that I carry around on my person. And I'm going to pray it for you plurally. This has just become, come to mean a great deal to me. It's from a covenant prayer in the Wesleyan tradition from John Wesley in a covenant service. So let me pray this. As you hear that piano, I invite you to receive this benediction. Lord, we are no longer our own, but yours. Put us to what you will. Place us with whom you will. Put us to doing. Put us to suffering. Let us be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let us be full. Let us be empty. Let us have all things. Let us have nothing. We freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and your service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, you are ours and we are yours. So be it. And this covenant which we have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. As we go forth this day with the eternally present God, and we dance our way to what's unknown before us, trusting him. We pray this in the name of the incomparable Christ, our Savior, our rescuing God, in Jesus' name. God bless you. You're dismissed. Please greet one another in the name of our Christ.